It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a continuation of the Division Capsule series that I've been doing for Real Jam Radio, and it is on the Southwest Division, one of the more compelling ones just because of the balance between the teams. And my two guests are Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated, who I've been a big fan of for a long time, but I've actually never had on, on this show or any other show, so that was exciting. And Jonathan Charks of The Ringer, former Real GM writer and such a talent. And so it was great to talk with both of them. The conversation runs about an hour 15, and this episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and get three meals for free, and it's an absolutely incredible service. Hope you enjoy the show. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Yeah, happy to be here, man. Likewise. So we're splitting this into two, off-season review and and then the season preview, but we'll start with the off-season as you kind of have to. And Who do you think in this division got better, and who do you think got worse? This was kind of a surprisingly weird question to, to handle in this division for me. Um, and some of it has to do with the Mavericks and the Pelicans and their weird situations. I think the Grizzlies have gotten definitively better in bringing back key pieces. Obviously, Mike Conley is a big part of that. Chandler Parsons gives them a lot of the, the pick and roll play, the shooting, the 3-4 flexibility that they've needed. I think he adds a lot there. I think the Spurs have gotten pretty clearly worse, as tends to happen when a Hall of Famer retires, even if you're replacing him with potentially another. Pau Gasol is just such a different player than Tim Duncan, where you know they're going to be compensating defensively. They're going to be dealing with that all year and kind of figuring out what kind of team they can be. And while I know in the playoffs they certainly struggled a little bit to figure out how to get more creation, I don't know that Pau does that for them in necessarily the kinds of ways they might need. But to me, the Mavs and the Pelicans are two teams where I... I'm not really sure what to make of them, in part because the Pelicans will probably be worse, but a lot of that has to do with Tyreek being injured and Drew Holiday being out for an indefinite period of time. So I don't know whether it's really fair to say that they're going to be a worse team because of those things. Uh, and then the Mavs, I think, have maybe the the wider range of, of some of these teams in that I could see them being a pretty solid playoff team just because they're a much improved defense given the personnel alone. And, you know, if they don't deal with some of the injury stuff they did with last year, then it could be a pretty clean situation for them. Or I could see them being pretty clearly on the outs. So, yeah, this division is weird. 
because it really feels like after the Spurs, the next four teams are so... Well, actually, maybe the Grizzlies are. I think I agree with Rob, with Chandler Parsons, and it helps a lot. But those next three teams, they're so clung together so closely that they go either way. And it's, there's so many, so many variables in play that are hard to know coming into the season that it's really hard to say who really got better and got worse. Like, I could see scenarios where the Rockets got a lot better, Mavs and Pelicans. I don't see a huge separation between those three teams. So it wouldn't surprise me either way how it, how it turns out. Yeah, I think the Rockets the Rockets got better just because they didn't lose as much. I mean, obviously they lost White, and that's very important. But, like, Terrence Jones didn't really add anything last year. I mean, he ended up signing for the minimum inside this division. And so getting Ryan Anderson, like, even though I think that their talent doesn't necessarily make sense together. They have more of it than they did before. One of the big pieces with New Orleans that's just so hard about it is they didn't look like kind of, if you want to say what they were on paper because of just the way they got devastated by injuries. And one of the ways they got better was adding depth at point guard, you know, more guys who can handle the ball, Etwan Moore, Langston Galloway. And, you know, that helps. And it's actually going to help them more considering Drew Holiday is going to miss the start of the season. But that isn't something that, you know, is a, it's, it's only a kind of a massive change if they get sabotaged by injuries the same way that they did before. It helps, you know, no matter what, it helps. But if it's a huge difference, that means that things are already going bad. Yeah, I think when I was kind of stumbling around that last answer, especially New Orleans and Houston, they probably lost talent from a paper perspective. But I could see scenarios where, like, the mix of players is just a lot better. Especially in New Orleans. This will be the first year where they theoretically have two players who give them two-way ability next to Anthony Davis up front. So instead of playing Ashik and Anderson and constantly trading offense for defense, maybe they can re- resurrect Terrence Jones' career. I'm still a fan of the guy who only had a bad season last year. And Solomon Hill, too. So all of a sudden they have lineups where Davis is not having to carry everything on both sides of the ball like they were in the past. Houston, to me, is interesting here, too, just because I feel like the talent is, is pretty obvious in terms of what they brought in and what they want those guys to be doing. But to me, they're so strange in that they may have made their biggest problems worse in the process of going through that overhaul. And like Danny was saying, you know, the, they don't always fit together in the ways that you might need them to. And to me, that puts Houston in a really weird spot where they could be totally explosive i mean this is potentially one of the three or five best offenses in the league next season and yet totally solvable in some other ways and and over the course of the regular season that could be a 50 win team that could be a 42 win team over the course of the playoffs i don't think it's anything that you know the top teams are necessarily worried about in the west but they put themselves in a very strange spot and you know mike d'antoni's kind of front and center of that in terms of the style he likes to play and all of these guys certainly fit within that style i just don't know if there's enough complimentary if there's enough complimenting going on to really make a fully functioning team. Yeah, I would say that, especially in the regular season, it's kind of like all offense all the time. In the playoffs, it's probably not going to work. But over the course of a season, you have James Harden playing more point guard. I would assume this year they're going to start Harden, Eric Gordon. And so that's going to spread the floor much more for him. They'll have Capella running pick and rolls. It'll be like it'll be like the spread pick and roll, like the most pure form of it. Just James Harden with the ball. 50 times a game, 50 pick and rolls, pure shooters around them. And that's going to be hard to stop in any situation. And once you get to the playoffs where teams can game plan against you, it'll be, the lack of defense will be exposed. But in the regular season, they're going to be a fun team to watch, and they're going to be hard to stop. And that wins games you know, in November, February, and March. Absolutely. 
the parallel might be to the George Carl Nuggets teams where they had a big advantage in the regular season, partially because of the you know the geography of where they are, just because it's so high in elevation, but also just the way they played was something that was tough to prepare for. And when you think about the way that, as as you as we all three of us know, with the regular season, teams don't have a lot of time and energy to really prep for any opponent. You know, like you're not going to be able to really prep for this Rockets team. It's just going to be you know you just kind of hope hope that you hold on and that you get a couple stops and and that your offense gets as many easy points. as they can in the playoffs you know it slows down and everything else but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they were a shockingly good regular season team and shockingly good doesn't mean you know they win like 55 games or anything like that but that we're sitting there at some point being like wow they're they're really outperforming it and that's why it kind of parallels that Nuggets team that was you know that they they had a really good record. I think it was like 58 wins. Some one of you guys will probably remember. Then they, you know, they ended up getting knocked out by the Warriors in the playoffs. And that sort of a road is is possible for them. But then you can also see with the Rockets, especially with direct precedent, that sometimes it falls apart for them. And I think that's part of what makes them so compelling is that I can see a really good best case scenario, but then their worst case scenarios are pretty much kind of things like what happened last year. I think the big difference, look at those last two teams, is they took a lot of threes, but they had a lot of bad shooters taking a lot of threes. So there were a lot of points on the board. And now this year you've got Ryan Anderson, Eric Gordon, and if those two guys can stay healthy, which is always a question with those two. But just moving the threes from guys who can kind of shoot them to guys who can just stroke threes that should get them a lot more points, really. No, it definitely should. I mean, one of the things that's so weird about this team, too, in terms of talking about the regular season playoff distinction, is I think the ways in which you would look to address them in the regular season, kind of the shorthand strategies when you're coming off a back-to-back, when you don't have a lot of time to prep, instinctively, I think you're going to want to hug the shooters. And so that kind of feeds into if teams do end up playing that way, if they don't have time to really think about how they're going to be guarding Houston, I mean, James Harden and Clint Capella are going to eat. And Clint Capella in particular, I think, is poised to to be a really mm-hmm. good role man for them. He's going to be playing, obviously, more minutes than ever before by a matter of necessity. But I think people are going to find out very quickly just how, you know, great hands, great athleticism, a better finisher than you even might expect for a guy who, who seemingly as raw as he is. He could have a really great season for them. Definitely. It's really open, but a move, so that could be a draft pick, a trade, a signing from this division that really stood out to you for whatever reason? Well, I think the big one, we can kind of look at it both ways, is just Chandler Parsons going from Dallas to Memphis. And that really affects both teams. You look at Memphis, I mean, Parsons is pretty much the best wing they've had, I guess, ever since this team has gotten going. I mean, I think he's probably a more efficient player than Rudy Gay. He's obviously a much better offensive player than any of the wings they've had. And you just wonder, like, is it already too late for them? Or is this version of Memphis, can they still pound inside? And now they actually have a guy in the perimeter can make threes. That should theoretically make them a much more dangerous team in the playoffs, whereas before, you could always pack the paint against Mark and Zach. And now it's just a matter of, are these guys a little too old now? Is posting up a little too past its prime for it to really work? Are they better off putting parts of the four and kind of de-emphasizing Zach Randolph and playing more of a modern system? And so I think that'll be an interesting question to watch all season for the Grizzlies. Yeah, I mean, on the other side of that, when you're taking, you know, a Rick Carlisle team and you're removing yet another piece who's a competent or, or even, you know, plus level passer, 
and you're potentially replacing him with Harrison Barnes, and Barnes is going to be in a different kind of role, has to be different, you know, to do different kinds of things. But the complexion of the Mavs now they changed over the last couple of years, and the pieces that they've swapped out and what they've brought in. I mean, a lot of cases they're doing the best they can given the t- particular timing of free agency. You know, missing on this guy and having to kind of scramble and make ends meet. But it really changes, I think, pretty dramatically from the kind of team the Mavs would want to be to the kind of team that they're forced to be under these circumstances. And Carlisle is great at kind of making things work with whatever kind of roster you give him. I think he's one of the better coaches in the league when it comes to doing specifically that. But losing Parsons, you know, they've certainly gotten used to playing without him due to his injury situation. But when he was healthy and on the floor, he was a great pick and roll scorer for them. Like I said, a capable passer, like John was saying, a nice three-point shooter, probably better than most give him credit for. Defensively, I think you live with what he can't do, and Memphis certainly will do that because they have the the infrastructure to make up for it. But Dallas is losing a bit here and losing a bit of dynamism, and I think you know they're going to see how far they can push Barnes and what they can get out of him. But I'm not I'm not terribly optimistic in terms of his game stretching out all that well. I think what you'll see is when Parsons got injured last year, they pretty much changed their whole team on the fly. They said we're going to stop pushing the ball, we're going to hold the ball, play grinded out defense and just win games 92-90. And they won a kind of a, a pretty hot streak in those last two weeks this season, got them into the playoffs. And I think they looked at it like, if Parsons can stay healthy, this version of this team can still win basketball games. So you bring in Harrison Barnes. I think you'll see a lot of Bogut Barnes, Anderson Matthews, playing a lot more defensive personnel, playing a lot slower game. And then it comes down to J.J. Barea. Like, I don't know if I remember this, it's under the radar a bit, but he was awesome that last month of the season. He was, he was starting, he was getting like 28 a game, hitting like 40% of his threes, and it doesn't seem very sustainable, but he's really the only Mavs player who can get into gets the win consistently as a point guard in the pick and roll. So how good can he be over the course of a season, and can those defensive guys carry Berea and let him do his thing? That's going to be the question for the Mavs. Yeah, they really don't have a lot of guys who can shake, just who can beat the first line of defense, who can fake it, fake a defense out in a way that could get things moving with some misdirection. I mean, like John saying, Berea is really kind of the key to the key to doing that, or having Dirk on the floor and hoping that his effect on the point guard or the ball handler in a pick and roll situation might be able to create that. But you know, that obviously creates some different defensive issues uh, from the lineups you were talking about. I. <laughs> I think that's probably the right approach for them, just given when you, when you get Andrew Bogut, when you're able to play Harrison Barnes of the four, Justin Anderson, I think, has some nice defensive potential. Uh, and West, I think, held up pretty well there last year. So if you can put those groups on the floor and get enough scoring, then that can definitely be a, a viable strategy. I'm just not sure that they're going to be able to produce enough offensively with those kind of lineups. Yeah, I mean, the other guy to watch is Seth Curry. I think we're all curious to see what he can do in a bigger role. He had those great last few weeks in Sacramento, and this will be his chance just be a bootleg Steph Curry out there. Like, Rick Carlisle loves small guards. He gives them a ton of freedom. He plays them a ton of pick and roll. He plays them a lot of space. So how we can Seth Curry be? I don't think anyone really knows. And the Mavs season, as strange as it sounds, might come down to that. Yeah, I mean, if you're a scoring guard who plays pick and roll and you can't get going in a Rick Carlisle offense with the leash that he tends to give those guys, you know, I think young, really young players provided. But I think Seth is kind of in that nice range where – this really could be the best spot in terms of a place to, to really jump and, and find a spot place in the league. And we saw, you know, as a pick and roll scorer, 
him really do a nice job in Sacramento. I think as a distributor, he leaves a bit to be desired. But if he's able to kind of come into his own as a pull-up shooter, if he's able to get to the rim as much as they might need him to, it could be a really good fit for him. What what goes on top of that also is that Seth is a very good catch-and-shoot guy, and so Dallas is one of the few teams in the league that can actually play him off-ball credibly. You know, there aren't that many teams that can and will do that, and so it's not the only way to use him. He can do more on-ball. He showed that at the end of the season in Sacramento, you know, running the offense, but that is another way to unlock him, and one of the things that I've been thinking about with this Dallas team as well, you know, bringing in Wes Matthews, bringing in Harrison Barnes, those guys, and Bogut, of course, too, those guys are all really good basketball players. But they don't have much in the way of shot creation for themselves and others. I mean, I'm hoping Wes can show a little bit more of that this year now that he's, you know, all the way back from his injury. But they are relying more on players who have point guard size or close to it, you know, Darren's a little bit bigger, to run a lot of their offense. And when you have Dirk Nowitzki, you can totally do that. You know, like he's somebody who creates space within an offense. But just the numbers game of this team is going to be very different. And that's why Carlisle's willingness to actually play two point guards is going to be huge because that's going to be how they can be more dynamic and be more interesting, especially when Dirk is off the floor because he he can be an engine. You know, guys like J.J. Barea can get looks when Dirk is on the floor because you have to respect his shot. He creates just the way that teams have to defend him creates it. But outside of him, you know, you're going to need a lot from those other guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Carlisle loves playing point guards. I was thinking I was playing this in our last podcast. There was a game last year against uh, the Thunder where he played – Harris the three and guard Kevin Durant. Like he'll play two or three six three guards. I think you'll see a lot of West the three and maybe even West at the four. This is a team that's really going to stretch Carlisle as a coach even more than usual. So it'll be definitely interesting to watch. Rob, did you have a separate move that you wanted to talk about or do you want to just roll with what we did? Oh, no, yeah, I definitely did. One that intrigues me is Nene to the Rockets. And some of that's just the scope of the deal, just like one year right around $3 million. But he could potentially do a lot of the things that they need. And I think he's a nice kind of, this is a weird thing to say about a dude who basically plays 50 games every season, but he's a nice kind of insurance bet uh, on Capella and a different kind of look in case they need somebody who's a little more skilled with the ball, who can do a couple of things differently, who's more proven defensively. I think he could be really nice for them. And he's in a position where he probably will not have to play major minutes, which is, which is great for his body and holding up over the course of a full season. But I really like what Nene was to the Wizards and what he, you know, how important he was to them defensively. Such a strong post presence when you need that. I don't think Mike D'Antoni ever will. But a guy who can also catch and make passes off the move, who rolls really well, who moves still really well for his age and his size. I'm pretty interested by that one. But again, like so many things with the Rockets, it's Nene and Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson and all these guys. How you know, how available are they going to be due to their injury histories? How much of that is, is really going to be a lasting and lingering concern throughout the season? I mean, if your backup center is never applying, then he's obviously not going to be much of an impact player for you. But I like the kind of piece that Nene could potentially be. Yeah, I also wonder if D'Antoni will expand his rotation in his last stint in the NBA. He always loved going like seven, eight guys tops. With these older players he has, that's probably not going to work over a full season. Like, you look at that rotation now, I'd imagine they only play maybe Nene, Brewer, and Beverly off the bench. That's how he's going to want to play. And I think Nene would be very valuable when Harden's not playing. Because once Harden is off the, is in the game, they don't have too many other shot players in this roster at all. 
No, and especially talking to you know some people who were around those D'Antoni teams and coached for them, it sounded like a lot of the reason why they didn't want to go deep uh, was just because they didn't think that the bench guys were very good. And I think Houston has kind of a similar situation this year where when you're looking at the Sam Deckers or even a guy like KJ McDaniels, who I like kind of as a prospect, but does not fit what D'Antoni would want on a wing player at all. There just doesn't seem to be a lot to draw from here. And so, you know, the starters and Harden in particular, I would think we'd play some some really heavy minutes, and which is going to be interesting with him being, I mean, he's always been a full-time ball handler, but how they manage with him being a nominal point guard. I don't know if they're going to have Eric Gordon be able to guard point guards or not or what that situation is going to be. But the starters are definitely going to have to carry a lot of this thing. I was just going to say Sam Decker is a guy I'm curious to see this year if we get any minutes because he's theoretically a kind of player that Tony could use. You know, an athletic wing, he likes to play up-tempo who shoots threes, can handle and pass a bit. And they're going to need guys that step up the course this season, for sure. Yeah, I definitely like Decker more in theory than in practice at this point. When I've seen him play at Summerling and things like that, I've not been terribly impressed. It didn't sound like the Rockets, from, from talking with them, were really ready to lean on him in any meaningful way just yet. But injuries do crazy things to a season. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets thrown into the fire at some point. Well, and also the Rockets have this combination now of like power forwardy big men in Onowaku and Montrez Harrell, who don't really make sense with D'Antoni at this point, especially when you consider that they have so many guys at the five. And one of the looming questions with them is what happens with Demo. I mean, Monty Yunus is a very good player who, oh, depending yeah. on how they use him, could be a, a nice fit with D'Antoni. Like if, if one of their centers is limited and that's where they're going to play him, Demo getting 15 minutes a game at backup center and providing floor spacing to help Patrick Beverly probably because he'll, I, I assume that Beverly will be the like kind of the offensive linchpin of the, of the non-starters. That's one. And then the other crazy Rockets question is, I'm guessing that we're going to see some serious time with James Harden defending the other team's primary ball handler. And I've had a pet theory for years now that that could really help him because you just have to be more attentive. You know, like you, you, it's a lot harder to lose the guy when the guy that you have has the ball. Like just as a functional perspective, it's it's doing that. But at the same point in the series against the Warriors last year, he did have times where he just got blown by by the guy with the ball and just watched him and basically sent him a postcard as he went by. And Dwight Howard got mad and everything like that. And so how that works, assuming that is one of the things they try, is a big question for somebody who's actually, you know, the year that he finished second in the MVP, his defense was non-terrible. It still wasn't good, but it was non-terrible. And maybe that energizes him or maybe it just doesn't. Yeah, I remember when he was in Oklahoma City, he was playing decent defense. I mean, Scott Brooks even had him guard LeBron James in that finals, which was probably not the best decision, but it showed that he actually trusted Harden on defense. And maybe also guarding point guards, he has a big size advantage. You know, being 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan, maybe he can play off him a bit and kind of use his size to contest shots and not just get killed. Though it does seem like with the amount of offensive responsibility he's going to have in Houston— it's hard to see him putting much of an effort up on that end of the floor. Yeah, and to, to Danny's point, I think if they do end up having him guard primary ball handlers a lot, or if it's any kind of regular strategy for them, I think all it will kind of serve to do is add a new wrinkle for the people who are making these James Harden defensive mixtapes on YouTube. Uh, because what you're going to see is, I mean, even if he does get that initial blow by, he may be one of the worst guards in the league in terms of recovering and getting back into the action. He just tends to kind of give up after that first line of defense. I think he can because of that length, he's so strong, and he, he really does kind of lock in a little bit better on the ball, which makes sense. But once he's out of the play, he is out. And some of it has to do with the way that they're looking to exploit transition offense and things and just kind of how he's looking to play into that. But 
I would I would look forward next season if that does end up being a regular strategy for them. Watch the big man, and once you know his defensive big, whether it's Capella or Nay, whoever has to rotate over, I would expect that big or whoever's next in the rotation, and the guy that Harden's theoretically supposed to be getting back to or rotating out to, that there should be some open shots there if that's what they end up doing. When I thought thought of this, I had two kind of parallel guys, and that and one of them we've already mentioned, so I'll focus on the other one. So over this offseason, there were three really talented in their own ways centers that signed for the room mid-level exception. And it was Zaza with the Warriors, Nene with the Rockets, and Dwayne Dedman with the Spurs. And all of them were interesting in their own ways, you know. At least Nene and Zaza took huge pay cuts. But Dedman might be the most interesting because he chose to step into a circumstance. I think he signed before Pal, but either way, he is really the closest thing they have to a kind of traditional defensive big man on this team. And I'm legitimately not sure how Pop is going to react to that. Like, is he going to use Deadman as kind of a weird safety blanket and just say, okay, I know what I can do with this guy. And also, as somebody who's covered Deadman at at early in his career and who's followed him for a long time, I think there's a lot there that hasn't been unlocked yet. And while we always give that deference to the Spurs of, oh, they're going to figure this guy out, there really is a possibility with Deadman that he can be more than he was asked to be in Orlando and than he ever got the chance to be when he was on the Warriors. I mean, I think Deadman is a, a real live NBA center, and at that, at that particular salary point, I think it was a great deal for them, in particular because of what you're talking about, Danny. And when you're looking at juggling LaMarcus and Powell and how are these guys going to fit together and what are they going to give you, I mean, Powell... He, he can be around the rim, and he's long enough to bother some shots. LaMarcus tends to kind of get – he's not always in the right position. I think LaMarcus is the better defender, but Powell maybe just a little more in the way sometimes because of how big he is. With Deadman, I kind of share, share your opinion on this, where I could see a situation in which he ends up being a closing option for Pop or ends up being kind of a piece to rely on defensively on a team that, that won't really have that presence in the middle on any more regular basis. I mean, the Spurs, it's not like they were playing Duncan a ton of minutes last season, so if you remove him, it's not like the infrastructure completely falls apart. Obviously, they can equip themselves to playing well defensively. They can hold up, especially over a regular season stretch, with the pieces that they have. But I do think Deadman gives them that kind of interesting change of pace and a guy who has such a different skill set that his value becomes pretty obvious for that team. I'm not exactly sure about this, but it feels like this is the most transition a Spurs team has had in a while. They've been in rotation from last year. You had LaMarcus, David West, Boris, and Duncan. They lose three of those four guys. So my question, I'm just wondering, do they end up playing smaller? And that was what I was really surprised about in Oklahoma series a little bit, is they didn't really try to downsize very much. They stay with those two big men, even though Oklahoma City's big men kind of dominate them with the point of attack. They never try to play those guys off the floor. So will you see more LaMarcus at the five, Kawhi at the four, and some more wings out there? Or do they stick that same two posts on words off in the regular season? Yeah, I mean, they probably should. And a lot of it has to do with the way that their offense is going to need to function. And especially like in that Oklahoma City series, when, when you're really strapped for creation and you're getting smothered around the basket, you're getting beat on the boards, it, it definitely would have been interesting to see a little more quiet the four. The matchups were, were as such where that might not always been, have been feasible, especially when Cantor... Can, can exploit you so easily in the low post if you put a smaller defender on him. And Durant is just a piece who you need to mind at all times. So that particular matchup, notwithstanding, I think 
in the regular season, they'd definitely be well served by playing Kawhi a little bit more at the four. And even if they can get him out of some situations where he's, you know, you want him guarding the top ball handlers as much as possible. But if you need him to be doing even more offensively, I mean, that dude is just as subject to fatigue as anyone else. I mean, he has a great motor. He, he's really invested. He's going to work, but he's going to he's going to work himself ragged if you let him go with the, over the course of a full regular season, being a primary offensive creator and a top stopper. And I think too, with the way the West is now, and you have Golden State so far above everybody else. At some point, the Spurs have to think we're going to see the Warriors in a seven-game series. Can you really run Powell and LaMarcus and David Lee out there for 35, 40 minutes a night and have any kind of chance of winning? And in the regular season, will they try to start using lineups they're going to need in the playoffs or really just wait till they get there and pray for the best? Well, one of the huge questions with San Antonio is that while intuitively it makes sense to go small at, at moments, you know, maybe not all the time and play Kawhi. Let's say, let's say you define that by Kawhi at the four, which is certainly a reasonable way to do that. They don't have a ton of wings now. You know, they have a lot of capable players. They have, you know, they have, they're lucky enough to have two pure ones that are both talented and they have Manu is, you know, an incredible six man, but the players that they have that are good, let's say interesting depth pieces on the perimeter are players that Pop hasn't shown a lot of trust in. Jonathan Simmons was a summer league standout in 2015 and, you know, has a little bit of Danny Green to his game, just a solid defender who can who can shoot a little bit but isn't as reliable in kind of the other facets of the game. Kyle Anderson, you know, he's gotten a little bit more growth in his game and everything like that. This is going to be his third year, you know, like this is a, a time that he can do that. But more often than not with pop teams, and this is true, John Schumann had that stat yesterday about how the, the Spurs had the best in the league. They outscored opponents by like, I think it was like 10 points per 100 possessions, which is absolutely bonkers. But this is going to be a substantially different Spurs bench, and that spills over into the starters, either in the case of injury or in the case of, you know, wanting to change things up and make things a little bit different. I mean, to me, it's all about Jonathan Simmons. He's kind of the one guy you were talking about who has that potential. And he kind of has to play more to them to unlock these smaller lineups. And I'm curious to see if there's a way they Pop will trust him more and will let him grow. This will be year two in the league for him. He's 27. Will he be trusted more? Second-year player. Will he play big minutes? Maybe not going to be in the right matchups in the playoffs. Because they really kind of need him. They do. And he he is something that is dis- kind of distinct within their team and i I'll t- i want to talk about this a little bit later but we can kind of hit on it now if if you guys are interested in it, is that one of the big differences between this team and all the others is that there are a series of guys that are on this Spurs roster that i wouldn't really expect to play minutes this year and you know whether that's Livio Jean Charles who it seems like that was more fulfilling a promise Davis Bertrands, who's interesting, but not really, probably not there yet from the limited amount that I've seen. We'll see what happens with Deontay Murray. So what that means is when you have those guys at the bottom that are really, you know, they'll play in necessity, but not really anything else, is that it pushes up a lot of these guys that have either been in the pop doghouse or or big question marks. And we haven't seen that very often. He's gotten to play guys that he's super comfortable with and that he has a lot of faith in. And the Spurs have done such an amazing job bringing in guys like Patty Mills and Danny Green and starting them in small roles. And then all of a sudden they're awesome and they get to be bigger. And now they're going to be forced to play guys that Pop doesn't know that well. Well, I mean, Simmons and Anderson are the two guys that we've been talking about. Like, can those guys give them more? They really are going to have to. 
Well, and I would put Deadman kind of in this camp, at least for now, you know, he's a guy who's never been on this team before. And we, I think we all think he's a good fit, but there is that kind of comfort level that is, he's not an established guy. He's not someone that, that their front office is like, oh, we have all this tape. We know exactly how we're going to fit him in. They'll just have to figure it out. Yeah. And some of it, I think, is kind of dipping into the pop doghouse, like you were saying, Danny, in terms of Danny Green can play more than 26, 28 minutes a game like he has been over the last couple of seasons. And a lot of it has to do with you know him doing particular things that Pop hasn't liked. His shooting struggles last season were obviously a part of that. But the way that they've managed minutes, I think there is some room for even the guys that Pop does know and has relied on to bump those minutes up, maybe accepting some of the older guys. Obviously with Manu, Tony Parker, even Powell, you want to keep those guys' minutes under wraps. But there is there is an opportunity for some of these other rotation guys to play a little more than they have if the Spurs want to go that way, if they want to keep their minutes suppressed then, yeah, we're going to see a lot of some of these science projects and see what works. Before we move on with the podcast, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Blue Apron. And it is a fantastic food delivery service that is a highlight of my week. And a great example of that is the last thing I cooked was shrimp and two cheese grits. And shrimp has, and seafood in general has been a real highlight with Blue Apron. And not only is it great tasting and fresh, but it's also sustainably sourced using the standards that were developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, And as the brother of a marine biologist, that is something that's important to me. And the idea of sustainable, high-quality ingredients runs through all of Blue Apron. And the other part was grits, because I've never actually made grits before. I don't really have much, let's call it southern cred, because I am from Northern California, born and raised. And it was a great experience. I've enjoyed eating them and to really make that and to build the confidence in myself. And that is one of the many ways that you can use Blue Apron. You can eat great food no matter what with excellent ingredients that are fresh and local as and you can also use it as a way to build up your repertoire as as a chef and i as an eater if you if you want that as well and so i have really loved using blue apron it's been more than a few months now and i really do look forward to it every week and fortunately you don't have to take my word for it because you can try it out for yourself so what you do is you go to blueapron.com/realgm and you can get three meals for free, and that includes free shipping. So it's a, a really a free experience to see how much you like it. Hopefully you love it like I do. And then you can move on from there. So it's blueapron.com slash realgm. Now back to the podcast. It's a basic one, but at the same point, it could be compelling with this division is who do you think is going to be the best newcomer to his team in this division? Yeah, I mean, we, we've touched on my answer a lot, and I think for me it's Chandler Parsons to the Grizzlies uh, for a lot of the reasons we've already described. But in particular, I mean, the combination of a guy who can make plays, who can score to the pick and roll, who can shoot in spot-up situations. But for Memphis in particular, a guy who's willing to press a little bit. And Mike Conley and Marcus Gasol are wonderful players, but part of what makes them so great and part of what also kind of works to their detriment sometimes is that they're very restrained. They aren't looking to, to really force situations offensively, and that puts them in a very comfortable, efficient space. But sometimes when all the guys on your team are either incapable offensive players, limited offensive players, or guys who are really just kind of looking to continue to make the best play, I think Parsons is in a nice space where he will force some things sometimes, for better, for better and worse. And I think for Memphis, a team that can kind of use some of that streak a little bit, that he'll be a really nice fit. Again, if he can stay on the floor, uh, his, his knee issues are obviously pretty real and pretty significant. But in theory, with his game and for the role that he's going to be asked to play for the Grizzlies, I think Parsons is probably the best newcomer. I'll go with uh, those two guys from the Pelicans, Terrence Jones and Solomon Hill. I'm really curious to see what they can do. And if they'll force the Pelicans to play smart lineups with Davis at the five. As I said earlier, over the last few years, Either at Davis or the center, just cannot play offense. 
just Anthony Ryan Anderson who cannot play defense. And so I just really want to see what it'll, what it'll look like when Davis is playing in a lineup with another two-way big man. And I think Terrence Jones in particular, he kind of fell apart last year in Houston, but he's had some really good moments. And he uh, back at Kentucky, him and Anthony Davis were great together. And you have two inside-outside big men who could switch screens, who can step out a bit, who can play off each other. And I wonder if playing with Anthony Davis can get more out of this guy's game than when he showed in Houston, playing with more freedom under Alvin Gentry. And I think that's the guy I'm really curious to watch in New Orleans, if he gets his career back on track. This is a guy who was starting on a conference finals team two years ago, and now he's almost out of the league. Can we talk about Solomon Hill for a minute in this context? Because I, I get what he brings for you defensively. I understand why you would want him in that regard. But as far as talking about guys who are going to be more two-way players for the Pelicans, what am I what am I not seeing in terms of Hill's offensive game and what he's going to be bringing to that team? It's a strange thing because he was very inconsistent offensively for the Pacers. I mean, he's really not a creator. He's not somebody who can do that. But when he can capably hit threes and he's physically capable of being uh, more of a transition player, the Pacers have, you know, that was one of the funniest things about what happened is like, uh, is that they wanted to like Larry Bird, part of what the wholesale changes they made, which are outside of this division, outside of this division were to go faster. And Solomon Hill would have made a lot of sense in that if they had chosen to keep him. So playing him as a four, is a much better use of him offensively because then, you know, he's not the greatest ball handler in the world, but if you have a straight four on him, you know, like let's imagine Ryan Anderson guarding him. Yeah, maybe he can have a little shake there and do something. And if he can credibly hit his shot, can do that. And I think the biggest difference with him and arguably with Terrence Jones, if he can really put it together, is that for so much of the time, and John got into this a little bit, that the the guys that they've functionally paired with with Davis during his last couple of years in particular were Oshik, who you don't really have to defend at all because not only is he, you know, not dangerous outside of two feet, but he has trouble handling the ball. He's not a great passer. Ajinsa, who's flawed in his own way. And then Anderson, great offensively, but doesn't really have it the other way. And so I think the idea is just that while Hill is not as dynamic as Ryan Anderson and all that kind of stuff, that at least he brings something to the table on both ends that none of their previous guys did. Yeah, I would say it's just that. It's just filling that role in the lineup. I, I just can't watch Ashik anymore. Like, I just can't watch that. He's lost his confidence. And he never had much touch to begin with. And they're just playing four and five, and the way the league is working these days, it's almost impossible to win doing that. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see more sense in Hill as a four for them. I have a suspicion that they're going to play him at the three, at least to start. So a lot of it will depend on how their season goes and if that changes. Or or maybe I'll be totally off base and they'll play him at the four from the beginning. But a lot of that has to do with I think Davis is still pretty resistant to playing the five full time for a variety of reasons. If they can kind of sell him on that and find those lineups, I think Hill makes a lot of sense as a four. As a three, I think he makes significantly less sense in terms of what you're getting out of him as a two-way player. I don't know that he changes things dramatically from where you were last year in terms of a wing who, yeah, he can definitely make some shots on occasions, and he's hit some hot streaks at particularly opportune times. I don't know that I'm ready to trust his offense yet outside of that kind of transition pace-setting standard. Yeah, I think he's definitely, like most of those kind of combo forwards, going from the three to the four is a huge jump for him. So I really depend on Quincy Pondexter. And can he come back and be healthy? And he's a huge key to this team. Not even counting Holly and Evans. They're already in the hold injuries. They've got to get him at 75-80 games this year to have any kind of season, I think. So for me, there, there were kind of a couple ways to think about this. Parsons is probably the most talented guy when you consider you know age and everything else. But statistically, it might be Pau Gasol just because he'll 
he'll get have more of a kind of reliable role and he'll get touches and he'll get points and rebounds just because of the nature of where he is with the Spurs. And there's a possibility that Harrison Barnes could work well with Dallas. It also might take some time just because some of the best things that he did on Golden State was as a four. And you're not going to do that very much when you have Dirk Nowitzki. But there is this possibility that with, you know, with the coaching staff that has more invested in making sure that he that he has, you know, more to his game offensively, that, you know, that that pushes him into something. Because with the Warriors, sure, they would have loved for him to, you know, become more capable as a dribbler or as a passer, or ideally both. But they didn't need it. They didn't need it at all. And so I don't know because I never really talked with them about it, whether that was just an imperative and whether that was conveyed. And so maybe that really helps him. You know, the idea of getting a max contract and being an important part of their future pushes him in a way that he hasn't really done before. And, you know, maybe that's what motivates him. We've never like he hasn't improved as much as as many hoped, considering he was a high lottery pick and a high end recruit back at when he committed to North Carolina. But maybe it helps. I will say there's going to be minutes to four for Barnes because the Mavs aren't going to play Dirk that often this year. They're going to want to play him like 65, 70 games, hopefully, and keep him at like 25, 28 minutes. And they'll probably also play him at five sometime just to say whatever. They did it last year a little bit. I think you'll see Parsons played a lot of minutes to four for Dallas, and I expect Barnes to be probably at 35, 40% of minutes at the four. So the last question of the off-season review part of it is not who you think is going to be best, but the rookie in this division that you are most excited to see. I mean, the first question, I guess, is will any of these guys even play rookies? I mean, you look at Carlisle, D'Antoni, Popovich. None of those guys really seem that interested in going with younger players. I think the guy who's on the biggest for right away is Buddy Heald. He'll get a lot of minutes right away, and he'll get jack up a lot of threes. I think the questions about him is the rest of his game – and whether that can translate to the NBA, whether he can be an acceptable defensive player right away, acceptable ball handler, acceptable playmaker. But you look at the Pelicans with looking at with Holiday's situation, which who knows when he'll be back. With Evans, who knows when he'll be back either. They need a lot of minutes and a lot of scoring from a rookie right away. And they drafted an older junior, the number six pick in the draft. I think he'll by far have the biggest role. I question whether he'll be a very all-around consistent player or even how efficient it'll be, but he'll get a lot of shots right away, and that's pretty rare for a rookie in any situation. I don't think Buddy's the kind of guy you want creating off the dribble too much or running the pick and roll too much, but in terms of a spot-up option who, if opponents are going to try to run him off the line, and I think that they might, just given his reputation as a shooter and given that people are going to want to challenge him and see what he can do, I think he's pretty comfortable in those situations in terms of putting the ball on the floor there and attacking a defense in rotation just because he doesn't have the best explosion off the dribble. He's not lightning quick. He's not going to be bursting to the basket. And even when he gets there, he's not going to be you know, a terribly consistent or great finisher. But I think if you give him a little bit of room, give him a little bit of that lane, just by nature of the defense closing out, he can do some things. He can pass a little bit. I'm definitely curious to see just as a guy who basically has banked his entire basketball career on getting buckets just to see what he can do in a professional setting and see how his game measures up there. But yeah, I think I think John's right in that he's really the only rookie in this in this division that's going to be playing a huge role right off the bat, or at least a significant role right off the bat, just given these coaches and their, their kind of expressed preferences. Well, the other guy I'll give a shout out to real quick is uh, Wade Baldwin in Memphis. That's true. I, I'm really, I really liked his game. 
And mem- when he was in college, he was kind of forced to be the main guy. He ran a ton of pick and rolls, and he was kind of stretched beyond his capabilities a little bit. But in terms of his physical ability as a defensive player, and he's a 40% three-point shooter, I would not be surprised if he can find... He's the kind of rookie who could five minutes in the right situation. And right now, behind Mike Conley, they got Andrew Harrison as their primary backup point guard. And I think the other guy to watch in Memphis is Jordan Adams. Is he even healthy? I don't, I'm not following that. But if he can't play, then they're going to need some of these young guards to get minutes. And that could give an opportunity for Wade Baldwin. And I guess Adams kind of counts as a rookie, too, because he hasn't played in two years. He has played on the four, but why, why I was going to go with the, for the two for me was Deontay Murray, just because I have don't know exactly what he's going to be, but we won't really see that this year. So I'm excited to see it just to get an idea, but that's mostly going to be an Austin Toro's question. But Baldwin is fascinating for a very basic reason, and it's that Memphis, in all of their spending, and well, I think all of us thought they did a good job in terms of just getting the most out of their dollars that they could in a surprising way with Parsons and you know everything else, James Ennis and everything else. They did not fill the role of point guards behind Mike Conley. Like their their backup, as far as I can tell, their backup ones are Wade Baldwin, a rookie who the biggest weakness with him was can he actually run an offense, and whichever of the Harrison twins they have. And I, I can't, I honestly can't Andrew. remember Andrew. Andrew. So so like the going into a season where you have high hopes because you added this you know guy you paid the max to, and then. Mike Connolly has the most lucrative NBA contract in, in history, you know, like that you have all this stuff and you have an older team to go into it deliberately with this shallow, a, a backup point guard group. It's a really big gamble. It might work. Don't really know, but that makes Baldwin a central figure in a way, even maybe that Buddy Heald isn't, even though he'll play more because, you know, the Pelicans are kind of what they are and, and, and he's, they're not going to rise and fall with him. But Wade Baldwin could completely define parts of this Memphis season. Yeah, the Grizzlies bench is really interesting. I'm, really, I'm taking a look at it right now. Like You've got a lot of guys like Jarrell Martin, who really hasn't done much in the NBA, but he's shown some flashes. Don't need him to play. Convince Carter still didn't play anymore. Is he 40 now? He's probably always playing in the league. And I think what you'll see happen is you'll probably see when Conley's not in, they'll run the offense through Parsons. And that would be the best place for Baldwin to succeed is guarding the backup point guard and then spotting up off Parsons in the pick and roll. And I think you might see a lot of Parsons, Brandon Wright in that second unit, kind of for the old school Dallas combination of a four and a five, and then maybe like Baldwin, Troy Daniels, James Ennis. I think you'll see a lot of experimentation with this Memphis bench. I mean, they're going to have no choice. The other one, and this is kind of cheating, but in terms of rookies that I'm excited to see is also, it ties in with that, how is Fizdale as a head coach? You know, like that's a, a, an important nuance with this team is not only did they change, you know, bringing in Chandler Parsons, who's the best wing creator they've probably had in this in the grit and grind era. I think it'll be better than Rudy Gay, but they also have a new head coach again. And, you know, will Fisdale open up some of the things that Rob talked about earlier about how they've, you know, they've played slow and they haven't really pushed it. And will that give them the latitude to do it because they have a new coach who isn't as tied to that legacy as even Jaeger, even though he wasn't the first grit and grind coach. Yeah, Jaeger Ben Zebo for a while last year. So it's interesting to see how much flexibility Fisdale has, things he has in the department, and how wedded he is to an older philosophy. That is a good, that is a good question. I'm always curious with coaches like Fisdale too, who have at least somewhat of a developmental background, how much they lean on those younger guys or those unproven guys or the guys who are really just starting to come in and establish themselves in the league like Danny was talking about. 
you would think that in theory they may be more open to that, but it seems like even guys who are developmental coaches by trade or who came up through that track, when they do end up in that head seat, like most coaches, they end up depending on the more kind of established veteran guys. But with Memphis, there are only so many of those. So we'll move on to the season preview part of this, and the first question will go to to go to Rob. And in most divisions, this has been easy, and it's been a kind of a throwaway question. But in this one, it actually is fascinating, and that is ranking these teams one to five. I would say in terms of expected regular season record, but you can do whatever as long as you explain it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll go by expected regular season record. I think the Spurs are the clear number one. And then from there, you can go any number of directions. I'm going to go Spurs, Grizzlies, Rockets, Mavs, Pelicans. And I see the Spurs as being, as I was saying, kind of separated from the rest of these teams. I see the Grizzlies kind of being a mid to high 40 win team health permitting and that there's obviously some room for that to to change the rockets i think that they could be a really interesting regular season team but i don't see them being that distinct from the mavs in terms of i think they're going to be kind of within range of the playoff bubble you know they're going to be kind of in one of the lower playoff spots but i think defensively they're going to be giving up a lot offensively they're going to be so hard to stop and in the wash that's going to come out as a pretty decent western conference playoff team but nothing to write home about And the Mavs, I think, are kind of in that range where you could definitely argue in favor of other teams to make the playoffs, uh, but they're going to be kind of right there in the mix competing for it. I think for me, so I don't have the exact same answers as Rob. I also got it in tears. As he said, I think the Spurs are clearly the top. That's not really groundbreaking. They're going to be the best team in this division by a significant margin. I think you have the Spurs by themselves. The Grizzlies, I think, are a little step above the rest of these teams just in terms of continuity they have. In terms of this, even with a new coach, they know who they are. They have their top pieces still in place. And I think Rockets, Matt, and I'll go Rock, Rockets, Mavs, Pelicans to me are all in the same same boat, same tier. And it'll come down to injuries and coaching for them, probably. And I think the Pelicans, if they could have had Holiday healthy, I could have put them at three just to do it. But if Holiday's out for two months, there's just not a lot of creation on the rest of this lineup. But I worry a lot about that. And I would say Dallas probably of the five is the least purely talented team. But at that point, it comes down to coaching. And then I've seen Rick Carlisle so many times just get the most out of his players. So I'll, I'll say in, the, in that third tier, Houston, Dallas, New Orleans. But let me know who gets injured from those teams at the start of the season. And you'll know how they, they finish, I think. It'll be pretty close. Memphis's injuries scare scare me a lot just because they don't have a lot of depth other than at the big man spots and their big man depth is different you know they, a lot of their big men also have injury histories Brandon Wright being the most obvious among them and are they really going to roll with Jermichael Green in serious minutes you know how are they going to handle that sort of a thing if it happens and if Conley in particular gets hurt and misses time they have nothing then in that way. Like, it's going to be brutally hard for them to win games because they have defense, but they're not as awesome in terms of that as they used to be just because their best players have gotten older. But at the same point, their full strength is number two in this division. And I think it's kind of hard to argue that unless the Rockets become their absolute best possible selves in that way. So it's hard because the idea that if Memphis stays healthy, I think it's least likely of these teams that Memphis stays healthy. You know, there there is a, a very real reason, and because they're so shallow, any injury gets scary with them. And we haven't even seen Marcus Gasol back from everything he didn't play in the Olympics and everything like that. So 
it feels I, I'm uncomfortable having Memphis second, but I think that you, at this point you just kind of have to because none of the other ones have taken the mantle. And and you talked about the idea of injuries being important, but also part of what makes this division fun is that a lot of these teams also have a positive potential that if things that they have a lot of changeover and if things really work out, they could do well. Like New Orleans can figure it out and they have a. a, a a much more diverse combination of players. And Anthony Davis, you know, if he can play 75, 80 games this year, like, they made the playoffs two years ago. You know, like, this is a team that can do that. Houston, Harden was number two in the MVP race two years ago. Dallas has one of the best coaches in the league. So it's exciting to see one where it's not just, oh, it's whoever stays healthy, but there are teams that could actually really rise. And since the bottom four are so close, it would be nice if that's the determining factor, not which teams have guys that miss like two, three months. Yeah, but that's just the way it's the nature of the beast in the NBA, unfortunately. With the way the season is, guys are going to get hurt. And then I think to me, I look at Houston, if Gordon Anderson stay healthy, but when's the last time those two guys have been healthy over the course of a season? I'll look it up, but maybe never. I don't know. And then if one of those two guys goes out, the whole plan might fall apart for them. That's true. Next one is, I, I like doing it in terms of number, not specific identities, just because that is more intellectually interesting sometimes, and this division is a good example of that, and it's, how many teams in this division will make the playoffs? Ooh, man. I'm going to say for sure the Spurs and the Grizzlies make it, but then I'll say, oh man, I'm, I'm going to pick the Mavs to miss, even though they always make it. Because one year they are going to miss the playoffs, just a matter of time. So I'll, I'll say three. I'll say Spurs, Rockets, Grizzlies. I'm going to go with four. And I think it, it in part has more to do with kind of the random injury stuff we were talking about. And while the Grizzlies and Rockets are certainly candidates for that, I see some of these other teams in the West as being kind of one bad break away, uh, one regression season away. Or in the case of a couple of these teams, some teams who maybe overperformed a little bit last year who might be coming back down to earth. I think Utah is going to come in as a team who wasn't in there last year. Maybe you could argue Minnesota. I don't think they're quite there yet. But I think with some of these regression candidates, I think that four four Southwest teams end up sneaking in with the Mavs included. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put the Pelicans, if Holiday can play like 60, 65 games. It's just there's no one to know about the situation and when they'll be back. Right. It's just so important what they do. This division's crazy because you can make a credible argument for everything from two to five. And five is unlikely just because that requires these teams all staying healthy. But another part of it is that the Pacific Division really only has two teams that, unless they get a best-case scenario, are going to make it. Because the Kings, the Suns, and the Lakers just aren't at that level yet. And what makes the comparison in this hard, but also you know interesting, is that the question marks in the Northwest are so different from the question marks in the Southwest. So... Denver, Minnesota, you know, Oklahoma City is more certain just because of Russ and everything else. But like with Denver and Minnesota in particular, yeah, you can make an argument that they could become a playoff team. But if I were to, you know, put odds on it, they would be below on paper. They would be probably below all of the teams in the Southwest just because they haven't proven it yet. And that, you know, a month into the season, we could be throwing that all away and say, oh my God, look at this. They figured it out defensively and everything else like that. But Minnesota hasn't won. I don't think they've won 30 games with this basic group, you know, since Kevin Love left. And going from there to 40, and 40 is probably not going to be enough to get in unless these teams really beat, beat each other up. So I think that there's a, a credible argument for four, especially if the Pacific only gets two. But 
I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit more optimistic about the Northwest and say three, but this could go you know it, it could go in a lot of different directions, and you know we could have three or four teams in this division that are all on the fringe at the same time. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I might put it at four. Uh, I talked about it because I definitely believe in these teams more than Denver, Minnesota, especially Minnesota. They're so young. I think people are skipping steps with them for sure. Carl Towns only in year two. Wiggins Levine are only in year, in year three. And it'll be a big change for them playing for Thibodeau. I don't see them kind of suddenly on fire right away. Like, kind of think it's been out there a little bit. To me, the questions in terms of just looking at the playoff bracket from last year and in which of those teams are likely to fall off, I think Oklahoma City has more of a potential to slide than people think. Uh, for as good as Russ is, the idea of a completely unhinged, unchecked Russ is a little bit scary to me. And then comp- you know, compounding that with the issues that they're going to run into in terms of spacing, what they've given up in terms of losing Serge Ibaka, in terms of the flexibility there as a spacer and defender. Obviously, losing Durant is something that completely changes the complexion of that team. And so that, combined with Portland, who I think played a little bit above where they might in the coming season, just given the fact that even their younger guys are mostly kind of already mid-career players in terms of their NBA trajectories, bringing Evan Turner in kind of complicates things in a way that I don't love. And they're still going to have the same kind of profound defensive issues to deal with. I think there's a possibility that one of those two teams slides down or even all the way out, which would leave the door open for even if Minnesota and Denver are on the out, which I would expect them to be. If we're thinking that Utah gets in there, that there could be room for for a Dallas or for even a healthy Pelicans team. If if Drew comes back early, like John was saying, or they're able to uh, to kind of scrap things together. I think there's room for four Southwest teams in there. Yeah, it really feels like after Golden State, San Antonio, the Clippers, the West is just wide open this year. There'll be a lot of teams at 40, 45 wins, which will be fun in a different kind of way. If the, the days of the the money West might be over, but the mediocre West could be fun to watch on a nightly basis. And that opens the door also because even some of the teams, uh, the, the best example of this might be Sacramento and Phoenix, where you know they're they're probably not playoff you know playoff caliber this year. They still have a, both teams have a lot to figure out, but you could make a capable argument, or I mean, certainly a reasonable one, that they could get to you know thirty eight, thirty nine, forty wins, and you never know how this is going to work out. And the other reason the Portland skepticism while I think they're a playoff team but why the skepticism in terms of them returning let's say to the high end like they were the like the four seed last year is because they were the healthiest team and so many so many teams around them just fell off due to things that weren't about Portland being good and they also from what I recall and I I have wanted to go through this more recently go through this before the season starts I, from what I remember, not only did they benefit from that from teams like Memphis just you know being abysmal once their entire team got hurt, but from what I recall, Portland ended up facing a lot of those teams during the injury time, and that you know beating who's in front of you is certainly worthy of praise. You know a lot of a lot of squads don't do that, but Portland just on the you know the the idea of experience and expected value and all that, it's unlikely that they are going to be by far the healthiest team again. Because, you know, even though they have young, youngish guys and everything else like that, you just don't play it that way. And that same thing is also true, and that's the underrated part for Oklahoma City, is that they're really top-heavy now in a way that they have never been in the recent recent times. And Russ could get hurt. You know, they could miss time with that. Or if, like, Oladipo or just kind of one of these other guys, other than maybe even their centers. But if Adams missed time they would be a very different team. And so that idea with Oklahoma City, you know, like I think that we have a pretty good understanding 
of where their start value is, and they're doing that, but they're kind of not worst case scenarios, but they're less than best case scenarios are probably not in the playoffs to me. No, I agree, especially if we're factoring in some of these other teams getting, you know, who are going to be on the bubble, who are going to be in this group with Houston and Dallas and potentially the Pelicans. If those teams have a, a little bit of good luck, if they make any kind of midseason move, if they have better health than expected, then I think, yeah, their best case scenario is certainly eclip the, the Oklahoma City's lesser ones. The Thunder are such a hard team to place, and we just have no idea what they're going to look like exactly, what kind of dynamics are going to be at work there. But I don't love some of that uncertainty in terms of, I mean, this isn't taking a 55-win team and marking them down. This is starting from scratch, basically, in terms of the way that team operates and you know, just just how they're going to rank in the Western Conference hierarchy is is a big mystery to me. And also they're just strange lack of shooting. You know, like this is, we, I think a lot of us in this conversation have been critical of some of the things that Orlando has done. And one of the, one of the criticisms for them is that they got a lot easier to defend. And Westbrook loves driving and there will be less space for him now than there ever has been. And so will they be able to deal with that? You know, will Oladipo get more reliable in that? Are they going to play Robertson at the four, you know, so they can have that? But they don't really have other threes. You know, Anthony Morrow isn't going to probably be a big part of this rotation. And Donovan doesn't seem like he's going to play campaign once he gets all the way 100% and rust together. So there are some circumstances where this Oklahoma City team is good defensively. There are a lot of ways that they'll be good defensively, but just can't get buckets reliably enough because having the the presence of all these, uh, these changeovers and not having KD makes it just easier to pack the paint and just force Russ to try to play his game in a way that he can't really anymore, that he can't with this combination of players. Yeah, I mean, I think personally he's going to have no choice but to play campaign pretty big minutes. And that's with a lot of these coaches. They're all fairly stubborn people. But once you're in a season, once you're about game 30, 35, you kind of have to play with the, what the players have, what the cards are dead out for you. And how flexible are you going to do with your rotations, with your philosophy? And that's really why I think Carlisle's an edge on a lot of these guys, that he's just so willing to change up and to adapt to what he's in front of him, strengths of his team. He's not going to necessarily play favorites. He's not necessarily going to just stay true to what he believes. It's just not going to work. And there's a lot of these teams from like 4 to 10 in the West, like they'll have to change on the fly, or they're not going to be very good. And how flexible are those coaches going to be in that situation? Final question outside of, you know, the possibility of we can, of course, bring up more things if you guys want to. And we'll we'll start it with Rob is any players that you think will break out. And that doesn't have to be becoming a star, just players who will rise to a different level of success or fame this year. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there are many candidates in the Southwest in terms of guys who are just, you know, really banking on becoming star level players. So really, we are kind of trading in some of the lesser tiers, I think. But I think Clint Capella is that guy in terms of somebody who, you know, even casual fans might not be super familiar with. A guy who, too, is, you know, in his career to this point has never averaged 20 minutes per game over the course of you know, his two years. He's really only played one full NBA season, mostly in the D-League his rookie year. I think he, he is so uniquely positioned as a big in a D'Antoni system who can catch and finish, a really active rim runner and transition runner, guy who's going to have a ton of playmaking and shooting around him. It just everything screams breakout to me. And even even as a guy who on a team that doesn't have a lot of good defensive players, a guy who can protect the rim a little bit, and I think who, whose block shot numbers will look pretty good, 
is going to be prime for a really big box score season and a really big kind of overall impact season. Yeah, I like the Capella pick. I mean, I think that's pretty. That's definitely the the go to guy for that call in this division. To go outside the box a bit in terms of not guys who are going to be stars but who have some potential. I don't go with Seth Curry. I think this the combination of the situation and his skill set is the Mavs are going to need to play a lot of minutes. And he's a great shooter. He's going to be playing in space. He'll be given a lot of freedom to put up stats. I think he's a guy who could have a pretty surprising year. And then I'll go for my deep sleeper pick. I'll say Jarrell Martin. I liked him a lot in college. He didn't really play much as a rookie. He was kind of injured most of the season. But I think he's got some real potential. And I think the Grizzlies are going to need him at some point in the season. So watch out for Jarrell Martin. That's a deep sleeper right there for you. One that is it's kind of weird to call him a potential breakout guy just considering his resume, but there is a very real chance that Patty Mills ends this season as the best primary ball handler on the Spurs. And Tony Parker's been fading the last couple of years. Manu, you never really know. Like He was very good last year, but he was shaky towards the end of the prior season. And Mills fits in with a lot of the things that they're trying to do. He can be a more dynamic scorer than San Antonio has asked him to be. And if they're the number two seed and he's kind of the best guy at running their show, that is a very different thing than he's done before. And then the other guy I want to mention is Jermichael Green, because if Memphis ends up in this idea of playing Randolph more as a backup center, which is certainly a reasonable thing, and I think he could be kind of awesome in that role in, in the way that so many of us have touted the idea of having this like back to the basket bruising center and Zebo's smaller than a lot of those guys he's smaller than Ennis Canner but he can fit that archetype maybe better than anybody Jermichael Green is somebody who can take that mantle either playing more with the starters I doubt he'll start games but play more with those guys to kind of stagger it a little bit or as you know a big part of their second unit and Memphis's second unit is going to be asking a lot of guys that haven't really done it before and Jermichael had a nice season last year and if he can do that it would be huge for Memphis. Yeah, and I think Justin Anderson has a place in this conversation, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that he's going to have a huge role, just given the fact that, you know, I guess some of it will depend on if, like John was saying, Harrison Barnes end up, ends up playing a lot of minutes at the four. But you would think that between Barnes and Wes Matthews and multiple, you know, two-guard and three-point guard lineups, uh, that he may not get a ton of playing time, at least more than he did last season. But I think he is positioned to kind of take that step from fringe energy guy to more reliable rotation player. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, you, you talk to any developmental coach in the league and they'll explain kind of the, the deliberate process that goes into specifically rebuilding a guy's jump shot and building NBA range. And this is generally, you know, a six to eight month pro- process. And Anderson last season was not in any way a reliable three-point shooter. Uh, I think the Mavs really just parked him in the corner on the majority of possessions and tried to get what they could just because he's not a super intuitive offensive player yet in terms of understanding what he should be doing in an NBA system. But with another year of experience with the Mavs specifically, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see him kind of bump up a little closer to league average on his three-point shooting to still bring the rebounding and the defense that makes him an interesting prospect and feel his way into kind of just being an NBA-level contributor on a more consistent basis. Yeah, I mean, year one to year two is a pretty safe place to say for improvement, especially in the Carlisle system. I don't keep playing Anderson much like the last month and a half of the season. So just in terms of consistent playing time, and that's always the first step for any young player is just, can he get consistent minutes? Because obviously, if you're not playing much, it's hard to be an impact player. 
while none of us want to see it, Anderson is also somebody who might get an opportunity just because somebody gets hurt, and so he can they'll see it, and then that that's a great way to build for a coach to get confidence in a player that he's already kind of let's say made a you know, a loose opinion on is that you have to put them in a bigger role, and then they ca- they handle it more capably than you expected, and you go okay, they have something more here. We've seen that a lot in NBA history, and so while you know we want Wes and Harrison Barnes to stay healthy. That is a way that could really get himself into that place and become, let's say, like an 18 to 20 minute a game guy and help them out. One other guy who I just want to kind of get in here mostly because we haven't talked about him too much over the course of this podcast is Atwan Moore. Just as, you know, if if Drew Holiday comes back and is able to play like kind of John was ballparking 60 plus games the majority of a season, if they're able to kind of have the rotation that they were planning around and Atwan Moore falls in as kind of your, your default two. And, and really comfortable in that spot. You've got a guy who can defend, who can who can slash, who can shoot from the perimeter, who kind of is a perfect you know fourth or fifth starter on on a pretty good team. And if the playoffs end up, or if the Pelicans end up having a surprise kind of playoff push as a result of being a little healthier, as a result of you know some of these other pieces falling into place, I think more will inevitably end up being a, a pretty significant part of that. Yeah, that's cer- certainly a good call, and the, the Pelicans have a lot of guys who could credibly join this list. Langston Galloway could do it. Terrence Jones could come back. Like they have a lot of wild cards, and so wild cards are pretty much always breakout candidates. Is there anything else you guys want to discuss? What do you think, John? Anything? Uh, I think we covered most of it. Yeah, I, I think the the uncertainty in this division is distinct among all the other ones. Like there, other than the Spurs being number one. I don't think we know a whole heck of a lot with this division, and that's fun. You know, it'll it'll be interesting in the scope of you know we still have the conference structure for playoffs, and because it's it's different kinds of uncertainty. You know, with with let's say the Pelicans, it's how good are these guys, and sometimes some of the Mavericks too. And with Houston, it's more of how do these guys fit together. And so when a division has multiple types of questions, those are the types of things that I think, especially for people like us that all watch you know teams around the league, that will keep us especially, let's say, the first month of the season, checking in on these teams more regularly than we might otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely the NBA in general sales this year. You got your two or three or four top teams, and there's just going to be a lot more variety around the rest of them, a lot more range for these teams. I mean, maybe not high range, but the middle seems bigger and not as distinct as it usually is. There are fewer terrible teams, too. I mean, there are a couple. You know, there are a couple teams that are probably going to be pretty bad, but... Even the, you know, I mentioned this before, but the, like the Kings and the Suns and teams of that ilk in the, in the East, there are like a million of them that, you know, probably aren't going to be a playoff team, but certainly could be. That's different than in other years where it seemed like the pool of playoff teams was maybe like 10 deep. Well, let me ask you guys this on the high end of things. I mean, how plausibly do we think that the Spurs could contend for a title this season or could push the Warriors or these other high level teams in the West? I mean, how good do we think the best in the Southwest is? I mean, I personally just don't believe in the bigs they brought in. I don't believe in Lee and Gasol as champions level players anymore. It's hard for me to see them be. I mean, the Warriors, I don't think there's any chance. But if they play the Clippers in the playoff series, I don't, I'm not too confident they can beat them again either. They may not even jazz to really get down to it. It's hard to yep. think of a kind of a theory of how the Spurs beat the Warriors other than perfect execution and, you know, and the Warriors kind of getting in their own way because. San Antonio is blessed with having, you know, defenders that can you can set them on the Warriors' two best guys, which is they might be the only team in the league where that's really true, especially if Amon Shumpert is kind of not not what he was two years ago. And 
That is great. That's a really nice place to start, but they have less shot creation than before, and the biggest question with the Spurs in that way is they don't really have enough guys now to combat when the Warriors go small. You know, they, they can... The lineups that, let's say, with Kawhi at the four, LaMarcus at the five, you know, if that's the way that you're going to counter the de- whatever the new death lineup is called, they don't really have that fourth guy. You know, are they going to go Tony Parker or Patty Mills, Manu, Danny Green, Kawhi? Like, is, is that going to be how they do this for? Because that creates its own questions. And if not, then you're getting into the Jonathan Simmonses of the world. And there are ways to exploit that, too. And, you know, Simmons doesn't really do a whole lot of creating for himself. So... The Spurs are, you know, they're, they could, I think they'll still be a very good regular season team because there are a lot of reasons to think that. But as a playoff team, they're going to need so much more from guys that haven't really showed it. Like Kawhi was miles better offensively than last year, but they're going to need him to take maybe not that level of a step forward, but another one to be really dangerous to the best teams in the league if we're talking about them as a, a title contender. And I mean, the more I do the season preview stuff when we get into it, and I'm breaking down the Warriors and what they're going to do, it's just like Durant is the transformational player. And I feel like he's going to make them all so much better. And they won 73 games last year. I, I haven't really thought about all this summer too much. I've kind of like put it out of my mind. But the Warriors of the next four or five years are going to be incredible. I just, it's really kind of mind, mind boggling to think when you really think about it. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about, in you know, in relation to the Warriors of last year, if you're a defense that's looking to guard that team and the pieces that you would need to be successful, it was already so demanding. And even just going from basically, you know, being able to hide someone on Harrison Barnes and Iguodala at the same time potentially gives you a little bit of cover where you obviously need the top flight perimeter defenders and you need somebody who can keep up with Draymond and those things are hard in itself. But now that there's really only one potential place to hide and Iguodala is still capable of going off for a nice game now and again or being a really good facilitator, especially with these Spurs lineups, I mean, the idea that you would be able to play Tony Parker and Manu together against top Warriors lineups may in itself be untenable. The idea that you would play Patty Mills in Manu or Patty Mills in Tony Parker. Like, if you put any any more than one defensive perimeter liability on the floor, Clay Thompson's going to run him around. Steph Curry's going to kill him in the pick and roll. Durant is a foot taller than them. Like, there's just no way out, if, even if you're the second-best team in the West. Yeah, I mean, and just the idea of, like, putting Kawhi on Steph is over. Like, now he has to guard Durant the entire game. Or, like, in the finals, putting LeBron and Draymond, that's over, too. LeBron's scored Durant the entire game now. It is just, like, Durant's presence, like, the imagine the matchups. Like, who guards Steph, who guards Clay, who guards Draymond? Significantly worse players guarding those guys now than last year. And I don't know, man. Well, the other, the other huge component of this is that last year, the Warriors got derailed because Steph Curry got hurt. You know, Cleveland deserves immense amount of credit for battling back and playing well, especially in that game five. They were they were huge in that, and and they I'm not trying to knock it at all. But the Warriors were always a you know a Steph Curry injury away from being a completely different team. It was true in the regular season. You know, they did squeak out that crazy win on New Year's against the Rockets. But now, I think that the Warriors, if they were without Durant or Curry, as long as it was one of the two. I still think they're the favorites in the West. And that's insane. Like, that's completely insane that a team could be that good. That's how, The closest analog to that is actually Cleveland last year, where, you know, Cleveland could have survived an injury in the East playoffs to anybody but LeBron, but the Warriors could probably survive it to any single player. 
Well, I think maybe Draymond now. Without Bogut there, I feel like if Draymond went out for a long period of time, maybe you might have a chance. But yeah, with Steph and Durant and Clay now, it's just crazy how good they're going to be, man. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again to Rob Mahoney and Jonathan Charks for taking the time to come on. You can read Rob at Sports Illustrated, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. You can read Jonathan Charks at The Ringer, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. I've also now Locked on Warriors is fully launched. I just finished the positions week so that is the we went through all the positions and why i'm thinking of that is because john charks was my guest for the centers because he has direct experience with zaza pachulia and javel mcgee had on other great guests tim bontemp sam vicini anthony slater to talk about kevin durant it was a lot of fun to do that and locked on warriors will be five times a week just like dunked on some have expressed concern that that will impact my ability to do dunked on it will not i will be doing all of those and will continue writing in the same fashion that i have before it is really close to finalized, but it looks like that will be the Sporting News, Real GM, and The Athletic, which it was at the end of last year. And I'm thrilled with that possibility and likelihood, let's say. If you enjoy this podcast, or if you have suggestions that can make it better, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or MBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. And I really do consider that. It is something that is important to me. And there are a couple things you can do beyond reaching out if you support the show. One of the biggest ones is to make sure that you subscribe and that you download every episode and that you rate and review the show, this and any other shows that you like, because those are things that are important to advertisers and to other people to find out that a show is good because reviews do matter for that. They matter for iTunes rating if you're an iTunes user or anything like that. And downloads are still the metric. They're still the thing there. And then the other huge one for me is if you patronize our sponsors. And right now it's Blue Apron. I'm a huge fan of it. Those of you who listen to the podcast have heard me gush over it. And it's legitimate gushing. I'm a big fan of the product. Go to blueapron.com slash realgm. Get three meals for free, including free shipping. Check it out. Hopefully you love it. And yeah, that that's really the, the big stuff that you can do for that. All of it will be going strong. I, I'm going to have actually Real Jam Radio. Is, it's going gangbusters right now. I was a little bit motivated to try to get some stuff done ahead of time because I know that October is going to get nuts. And so I've already recorded an episode for this with Tim Bontemps, which will kind of be put out in a lull at some point. It's not super time sensitive. And then I'm hoping to do over-unders with Arturo Galetti in the very near future. It's an annual tradition. It's one of my favorite things to do. And knowing us, that will probably end up being a two-part episode. So that means you'll be getting a lot of Real Jam Radio. And rest assured that the Division capsules will go all the way through. They'll finish. And the Southwest and the... the or sorry. the Yeah, the, the Southeast and the Northwest are the two that are left. I have guests pretty close to finalized on those and and have a couple things the next few weeks. So those will probably be in early October. That's the early indication right now. It's not all the way done, but super exciting, really ready for the season to get close to starting. We're almost a month away right now and getting news about decisions in terms of roster spots and also Kevin Durant, Kevin Garnett, sorry, Kevin Garnett's retirement today, which 
isn't surprising in the sense that, you know, he looked like he was pretty close to done last year, but he's been such a big figure in the sport. And so to see Kobe, Tim Duncan, and KG all retire the same year is a big thing. And my heart goes out to Chris Bosh and his family in Miami. He's somebody who I can attest to from personal experience is a really great guy. And I hope that he can come back from this and that it becomes something else, but you never do know. And there is a lot more to life than basketball. And fortunately he is going to get his money as well. So that part of it, while that's not the most important thing in the world, it does help. And so I wish him the absolute best. Hopefully he can make it back onto the floor and that would be great. He's a legitimate hall of famer as well. So, you know, heaven forbid he doesn't play another NBA game. He'll be a fourth star in that class. Maybe not of their caliber, but a massive impact on the league itself. And hopefully I don't have to do a Bosch, you know, tribute at some point because hopefully he plays a lot more time in the league and every everything like that works out. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told makes it easy. Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.